24-hour confinement, hours of restraint, violence, isolation, infantilization. This is the reality for many people suffering from mental health disorders in Slovenia. For some years now, the country has been trying, to an extent, to change the way it deals with mental health. But what are the results so far? And what can be changed? Welcome to Meanings of Cohesion, a podcast exploring the impact of the EU's cohesion policies on our lives. In today's episode, the impact of the European Union's cohesion policy in Western Slovenia. My name is Alexander Damiano Ricci. So, in this podcast, you listen to a reportage story from Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia, a conversation between me and the editor-in-chief of Babel International NGO, Quentin Aries, about other projects funded by the EU cohesion funds in Western Slovenia. Talk to you after the reportage. Slovenia, where mental illness is a crime. By Clara Sirovnik. Twenty-four hour confinement, hours of restraint, violence, isolation, infantilization. This is the reality for many people suffering from mental disorders in Slovenia. For some years now, the country has been trying to an extent to change the way it deals with mental health. But what are the results? Patients, relatives and carers tell their stories. 59-year-old Jock Podlesnik holds a cigarette between his middle and index finger as we stroll along Preshiren Square, perhaps the most beautiful square in Ljubljana. While his close friend Andras Rosman, a writer, journalist and activist, and I chat along the way. Jock follows at a little distance behind. Every now and then he wanders off and then rejoins us, greets an old acquaintance, lights up a new cigarette, fetches a tin of food from who knows where and stops to make a phone call. The unusually hot summers that Ljubljana has experienced in recent years don't bother Jock as he travels around the city to escape the heat which can leave people feeling breathless and exhausted He swims in the Ljubljanica River. The city and these streets are his home. Every time he has been forced to leave them, through the course of his life, he has suffered. We are heading to the headquarters of the organization Kralji Ulice, King of the Street, dedicated to people in need, which publishes its own newspaper. By selling this newspaper, which costs one euro, Many addicts, homeless or mentally ill people can earn a living in Slovenia. Outside the organization's building, a large number of people, mostly men, are gathered. They either come here to sell newspapers or to seek solace. At the moment, Jock is not one of the sellers, but he visits the organization regularly. There are friends he enjoys meeting at Kralji Ulice, and he feels safe here. Today, he will also receive a free pass to an upcoming basketball game, which for a passionate fan like Jock is an absolute necessity. As a young boy, Jock wanted to study history and geography. He was drawn to exotic countries, foreign cities and other worlds. 
After he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and admitted to a psychiatric ward, his plans fell through. When I was first admitted in 1982, they washed me like a pig with cold water from a black hose, he recalled. The scariest part was when you had to undress. Two huge men who were medical technicians escorted you to the changing room. If you were too slow, you could be hit, he explains with a tone of resignation in his voice. Jock's story is first and foremost a testimony about the history of our mental health system, Andra's comments. But it is also a story about the present. The conditions in psychiatric and closed institutions have not changed much to this day. Only the methods are slightly different, he adds. Andras is not surprised to hear about the inhumane conditions in which people with mental health issues have lived and continue to live in Slovenia. In this country, by comparison to other EU member states, deinstitutionalization started late and at a slower pace. For instance, the process was at its height in Italy in 1980 and admittance to institutions was banned by law. In this neighboring country, people with severe and chronic mental health disorders were cared for in several regional mental health centers, a move which was not mirrored across the border in Slovenia. The rhetoric justifying the decision not to begin deinstitutionalization claimed there were numerous faults in the deinstitutionalization process and possible negative effects, such as a supposed increase in homelessness and the lack of care for psychiatric patients. To this day, no institution in Slovenia has been fully closed, and the majority of care for people experiencing mental distress is still provided by institutional care while there are fewer frameworks for communal living and community-based services. What's more, the long-stay institutions and institutional units are even growing or being renovated. Even though protocols are available, there remain limited opportunities for resettlement in the community. As an activist and writer who also explores mental health issues in his documentaries, Andras has heard dozens of stories similar to Jock's, he tells me. Some of the violence in psychiatric hospitals is legal, such as being tied up for four hours, and some is not, but still exists, such as excessive restraints for up to 10 days, intentional dehydration and genital beatings. People come to psychiatry frightened, distressed, and often expressing themselves through aggression. In return, they get coercion and violence. Medication is provided, but there's not nearly enough talk-based therapy, Andras continues. When Jock began his career as a madman, in quotes, as he describes it, there were other methods, such as electroshock and insulin therapy. Those methods are no longer implemented, but the violence, however, continues. Andras, who works daily with people who have lived or are living in these institutions, says, workers often treat people not as subjects, but as objects, without believing that the will of the person concerned means anything. To change this, a fundamental shift in thinking and in the system is needed. Jock is a very thoughtful man. 
as we walk to his apartment on the other side of Ljubljana. He discusses climate change, football, antique sales and fishing. His many interests are evident in his very cluttered room, which is difficult to enter due to the abundance of objects. The walls are covered with photographs of famous sportsmen and women and imitations of works of art. The shelves are lined with books, magazines and photo albums containing pictures of people, some of whom Jock no longer has contact with. When they don't meet in the center of Ljubljana for a coffee and croissant, Jock's favorite dessert, this is where Andras and Jock spend time together. When it comes to housing, Jock is always on edge, says Andras, sitting in his friend's room. He lived in his own apartment for a while, then was placed in a group home of the Slovenian Institution for Mental Health and ended up homeless for a short time. In 2017, he moved into a Ljubljana housing fund apartment, his current accommodation, which is an institution without staff. If you are a citizen of Ljubljana, you can apply for accommodation in public housing. If you meet the eligibility criteria, including unemployment, disability and social vulnerability, you can expect your application to be approved. However, this is not a place where mentally disabled people, including those who have been in institutions for a long time, receive any support with daily tasks they may not be able to do for themselves, physical care if they need it, or any therapy they may still need. The building with its long white corridors and shared bathrooms is home to people from all backgrounds, people with mental health issues, homeless people, people who have perpetrated violence and people who have been victims of violence. All residents may come and go as they wish, but they have to abide by a set of rules, including no visitors after 10 p.m. Since the authorities say that Jock is not following the rules, although he strongly disagrees with this statement, he now has to move out. There is a chance he could end up back on the streets. And although Jock is one of the few who has managed to leave institutional care, at least to some extent, his life could have been different with the right support. The provision of adequate support in Slovenia is still in its primary stages, and closed institutions have a long history. Andras recalled one of the first institutions or branches of the institution to be closed down in Slovenia, the Trate Institute which operated in Kamura Castle from 1949 to 2004, which is part of the larger Hrastovec Institute, which operates several branches, some of which are still active today. At first, the Trate Institute was reserved for the seriously ill and infirm, who were also impoverished and often without relatives, and later for the neurologically and mentally ill. The castle is located right on the Austrian border, the Mura River, which has been the national border for the past 100 years, runs underneath the walls. Daria Farasin and Sonia Beziak are residents of Trate. They grew up near the institute where 350 patients were living 24 hours a day at the time. As we march through the great cold castle, Sonia recalls, the residents of the institution would sometimes walk around the village, but there was no significant contact between them and the locals. When rumors that the facility would be closed began to circulate, local people feared for their jobs there. 
In the end, the workers from Trate did not lose their jobs. They now have to commute to work in the surrounding towns in other branches of the Hrastrovic Institute. 20 years after the closure, Sonia says happily, we can be proud that the first total institution in Slovenia was closed in 2004, right here in Trate. To prevent the castle from falling into disrepair and to learn from recent history, the former patient wards have now been turned into a museum of madness. Sonia is its director. She is very passionate about the running of the museum, a job she does on a voluntary basis and without pay. This is our legacy. And with the museum that operates here today, we want to raise awareness and help make sure that the human rights of the many people who still live in institutions today are respected. We have to reject institutions, she continues. The creation of institutions like the one in Trate began with industrialization, when people started working outside the home and were no longer able to care for their disabled relatives. During the Nazi occupation of Slovenia in Styria in 1941, many mentally ill people were executed. Around 600 people with disabilities from Slovenia and Styria were taken to death camps to Austria. And after the war, castles and mansions were nationalized and many became places of institutional care for orphanages, hospitals, homes for the elderly and disabled. Because people were unidentifiable, the documents left in Trate testify that they were given names such as the mutant woman or the deaf and dumb Julka, and so on. Until 1970, the Trate institution resembled a more traditional communal lifestyle. People, then called patients, worked in the fields and stables. Standards rose under socialism as the state concluded that people could not live in such conditions, so central heating and toilets were built and the first trained nurses were employed. The sanitary conditions were disastrous. The nurses brought knowledge to the institution. Field work was also abolished because it was perceived as exploitation. But surviving without work was harder in its own way. 350 people were now trapped behind the walls. Her colleague Daria continues. The rooms still bear witness to the state of the institution just before it was closed. The windows were frosted, so the patients couldn't see the outside. In the dining room, there were no forks or knives. The dehumanized mass of people often threw food at each other and ate with their hands. The workers were also in dire straits. Some 80 or even 120 people were being looked after at night by just one or two carers. The lack of therapy was compensated for with pills, technical barriers, restraints and straitjackets. The women were particularly vulnerable. Some of them, having been abused before entering the institution, were subjected to forced sterilizations and contraceptives, abortions and the removal of their children. Suitcases and all the things that had been forcibly taken from people were left behind in the castle. Sonia told a story about a patient who loved to help in the fields and never took off her rubber boots, even at night when she slept. The workers eventually accepted this because she was perceived as crazy anyway. When she died, it was discovered that she had hidden money in them. She was prepared to do anything to have something of her own. 
The staff were not happy either with the way people were being looked after, says Sonia, who together with her colleagues collected testimonies from former employees of the institution. They found the lack of hygiene and the overworked staff particularly worrying. However, because they worked hard and to the best of their ability, disapproval towards the institution, as it stands today, hurts them in its own way. At the same time, they have internalized the idea that what they did was the best that could be done, and in that sense, the right thing to do. While in many countries the process of deinstitutionalization has been going on for a long time, in Slovenia, institutions are still robust. Today, around 2,700 people live in special institutions and about 700 in closed wards, as stated in the deinstitutionalization strategy, an internal document of the Slovenian Ministry of Social Affairs. Current legislation allows for a further increase in the number of beds, in contravention of European Union guidelines and the International Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. With the help of two European-funded projects, things have started to move in a more positive direction. One of them involves moving residents from the institutional care facility Dom na Kruso in Tutovije in the region of Primorska, on the border with Italy, to community-based homes. This project marks the beginning of the end of the total institution in this part of Slovenia, promoting and safeguarding the dignity and respect of users of its services, adults suffering from long-term mental health problems and adults with development and mental disorders, is at its heart. There, these adults will be equipped with the right skills and support in order to help them reintegrate into the community and live as independently as possible. Despite their issues and challenges, the project worth 2.2 million euros will be co-funded by the European Social Fund, with the contribution from the fund standing at nearly 1.8 million euros. In Dutovice, the history of moving people goes back to the opening of the first residential group in 2003. So far, 171 people have been moved out of the institutions to group homes where they live in smaller groups and are better integrated into the local community. Instead of living in separate, closed facilities, they live in group homes, on their own or in very small groups of people, making their own schedules, getting back to work, pursuing their hobbies and, last but not least, having the family and intimate life they were deprived of when they were institutionalized. Meanwhile, the staff of the institutions continue to help them with their daily tasks that they cannot do for themselves. Urska Sorta Kovac is sitting in the garden under the linden tree in front of the Domna Krasu institution, which is becoming less and less crowded by the day. She has been working here since 1996 and is one of the most qualified people in the country in her field. Despite the recent progress, she argues that Slovenia is still a very institutionalized society. There should be no punishment without a crime, but we are criminalizing mental distress. We are removing the unproductive to keep the streets clean. The slow path towards deinstitutionalization is merely symptomatic of Slovenian society's past choices. And yet, Urska argues when residents are moved to open communities, things change on many levels. The lives of both residents of group homes and staff are different from then on, says Urska, 
Residents have forgotten a lot. After their time in institutions, they need time to get used to their new surroundings. First of all, there is a period of recovery because moving is a stressful experience for everyone. The staff, on the other hand, have to make a big change in their way of thinking. It is not only the residents who are institutionalized, but also the staff. They have to look after people in a different and much more personal way, according to the individual's needs. It's a shift of routine. The real needs of the person, which have been hidden for years, comes to the surface, she explains. That's what Urska Sorta Kovac does on a daily basis. She helps people to formulate and achieve their goals, even if it's just to go to the cinema. She gives them psychological support for each step. Unlike in the past, people are allowed to shape their own daily lives. And those daily lives are, for the most part, no different from the lives of people without disabilities. Jock has not been able to live in a supported but non-institutionalized home. If that were the case, he would be able to re-enter the workforce in midlife and secure a more stable income, which he has never had. This has consequences even today, where he lives in uncertainty about where he will sleep tomorrow. It's not just about living alone or in small groups. It's also about taking an active part in your own life and having a say in the work processes, Urska continues. One of the most important developments they are introducing is the involvement of users, including their participation in all working groups, up to and including management. Dialogue with the community is also crucial to successful integration into a new environment. But it is not always an easy path. The EU-founded project in Dutovice encountered resistance from local residents. Of course, there is fear. But the question is how much it escalates and how the escalation of fear is generated. The main idea of the project is to work on all segments, users, relatives, staff, the wider community, says director Goran Blaschko, who has been working here for five years and who took over at a difficult time. The work was particularly challenging during the coronavirus outbreak, when it was hard to find places to house people, Blaschko explains. The project, with its deadlines and requirements, also has many limitations. It has a duration of only three years. Another major problem is overcrowding and lack of space, especially for people under court orders. There have been cases where people have been forced to sleep in the corridor. But the solution is not to increase capacity. More community work is needed, Urska continues. Deinstitutionalization will not end when the last person moves out of a closed institution, but rather when wider society changes its perception of this important part of our community. The success and speed of the reintegration process depends on how long the residents have been away from the community and on who supports them along the way. Jock has spent more than 15 years in and out of institutions and outside of society. But when it comes to support, he has a great advantage. A book written by Andras about his life called Titov Sin, because Jock also imagined he was the Yugoslav's leader son, has given him support as well as a social network. On our way out of Jock's apartment, Andras briefly recalls that he used to make pancakes for the people in the Dutovice institution, which is now in a state of transition. One of the people who worked there had no teeth. He was not allowed to eat the pancakes due to the risk of choking. 
he would have given anything for that pancake. He became aggressive because he was the only one who could not eat it. I wondered what to do, and I cut his pancake into very small pieces, he recalls. Immediately, the man's behavior and attitude changed. I asked him if I could make him another one. He said no, and that there should be some left for the others. What does that tell us? As they used to say in Trieste, freedom is therapeutic. We must open the doors of the institutions and allow independent living to flourish, says Andras. After we say goodbye, Andras and Jock went for another coffee. Jock is preparing for yet another public campaign on the importance of deinstitutionalization in Slovenia. He is still fighting every day, and Andras is helping him as much as he can. But the fact is that while Jock has big ambitions, Life continues, and at the end of the day, he still worries about where he's going to live, what he will eat, and how that long-awaited basketball game will turn out. This story is part of the Utopia campaign, a journalistic project shedding new lights on the EU cohesion policy. And now we are back to our section where we interview the editor-in-chief of Bubble International NGO and Arab.eu, Quentin Ariens. How are you, Quentin? I'm pretty good, Alex. Thank you very much for having me for, I think, the last episode already. That's right. It's our fifth and last episode of Meanings of Cohesion. And today we actually traveled back to a country where we had been already in episode number three. So we are back in Slovenia. And tell us, what can we say about cohesion policies and, you know, application of cohesion funds in Slovenia in a different region, I guess? Yeah, we are going to the Western side, so more closer to Italy. So like for Western Slovenia, which I think is super interesting, like Western Slovenia also covers the region of Ljubljana, which is the capital. It's again, I think, like how the EU cohesion policy is really trying to found universities and to found projects relating to the youth. So we can mention like they're really trying, like just even to go into like some kind of a social issues on how, you know, like students are failing about like a non-violent communication about how, you know, we can really see like participation into social activities. Another thing which is not EU cohesion policy as such, but maybe funded by other grants, like uh, the grants from Norway and Iceland. Also, like how, you know, you can help like young people in Slovenia to get some new trainings so they can get some new jobs for tomorrow. So as you can see, really focus on youth for basically young people to have a nice life and to stay in Slovenia as much as they can. Right. And in the previous episode, you told us about a project which was about the reconversion of steel plants. But what's your focus today? Yeah, I think it's slightly more uplifting. I don't know if it was because it, it is for the last episode. This is really about what some Slovenian universities has been doing on sports. And for example, how you know you can put some new incentives and some new tools for students and young people more generally to be really keen about sports activities. I don't have to tell you right now that obesity, like it's a vivid concern today in Europe, in many European countries. So I think it was 
super interesting just to see, okay, like the EU cohesion policy is not only funding motorways, it's not only funding, you know, innovation centers for startups. It is also even funding projects when basically you can do sports and how you know sports can bring value because like doing sport, doing a sports activity, I don't know if you're a sportsman, uh, Alex, yourself, but like it brings value, it brings social value. I think it was also like, uh, it can be those kind of projects are also nice to remind us that basically like projects funded by the European uh, Union cohesion policy are really meant to be on the ground and as concrete as possible for everyone. So Quentin, let me thank you not only for this episode, but for this short but really interesting journey into EU cohesion policies. Thank you for your participation in this podcast all along. Thank you, Alex. It has been a pleasure to talk with you. And this is it for this episode of Meanings of Cohesion, a podcast exploring the impact of the EU's cohesion policy on our lives. This podcast is part of Europod, a podcast network home to captivating stories from across Europe and quality information on the most pressing issues of our time. Meanings of Cohesion is a collaboration between Europod and Arab.eu, which publishes long-form reportage stories from across Europe in English, French and Italian. The reportage story you listened to was published on Arab.eu, where you can also find beautiful accompanying shots. This podcast is produced as part of Utopia, a project financed by the European Commission, which aims at raising awareness of the concrete benefits offered by cohesion policy in Europe. Utopia is a project led by the Assembly of the Regions and Bubble International, an NGO based in Paris. The producer, host and scriptwriter of this podcast is me, Alexander Damiano Ricci. Reportage stories are read and brought to you by Gail Rego. Mixing, editing and mastering by Jeremy Bocquet. Original soundtrack by Thomas Kosberg. 